welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling, on stage, here in Berlin and beyond. And we did just that earlier this week, and the talk from Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dowsens was so fascinating, I just could not wait to share it with you in this very episode. And our other lovely co-founder, Katie Darbyshire, is here on the couch with me to talk more about this. Hey, Katie. Hi, Susan. I'm not actually reclining, I have to point out, on the couch. I wish it was both upright, just so everyone can imagine. Yeah, it's not a Freudian thing. It's just a comfort <laughs> thing. <laughs> So, uh, Katie, well, we will actually hear Freud in this episode, won't we? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> also. Freudian slip. Yes. Yeah. And maybe some reclining also. Oh, yes, I think so. <laughs> and sliding. <laughs> <laughs> so enough of that preview. Um, so, Katie, as I said to you and Florian after the show, I mean, I think at the moment, global politics is kind of getting me down. Mm. And while I would not recommend this particular dead lady as a role model, so to speak, I certainly don't suggest following her often questionable methods to the letter. I felt really energized by her conviction, her persistence, and her determination. So Katie, name our lady. It is Emma Goldman, the anarchist, philosopher, activist, and writer. And I agree, I found it really inspiring, yeah. Okay, here's Florian with her story. I'll start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Born in what is now Kaunas, Lithuania, and then part of Imperial Russia in 1869, Emma grew up in a Jewish family of low-grade Tolstoyan unhappiness, as biographer Vivian Gornick has it. Her cold mother never stopped grieving the loss of her first husband and resented Emma's father, the second husband, for blowing her inheritance on a series of failing businesses, moving their family of eight to uh, Königsberg, Popelan, which is now Papeli, I think, and uh, St. Petersburg. This is a portrait of the family the two elder sisters had um, escaped. Um, they were in America. Emma is the girl on the left who is like leaning away from her family. <laughs> Emma would be whipped and beaten by her father, and her teachers also resorted to physical, mental, and even sexual abuse. Though she passed her exams for secondary school, her religion teacher hated her so much for standing up to this abuse that he wouldn't provide the required character reference, saying she was, quote, a terrible child who would grow into a worse woman. <laughs> he was not, not entirely wrong. Um, <laughs> Working in glove and corset factories from the age of 12, it's no surprise Emma felt constricted by a system that was so much bigger and more powerful than her. She started sneaking out to balls, to dances, uh, reading radical literature, dreaming of revolution, of free love, but her father um, really wanted her to get married. She was 16, I mean, <laughs> right? When she objected, he said, all a Jewish girl need know is how to make a filter fish, cut noodles fine, and give her husband babies. Infuriated, she threatened to kill herself if he didn't allow her to emigrate to America and move in with her sisters in Rochester, New York. Uh, but in the land of the free, Emma was just as stuck, living in a dark tenement, sewing heavy overcoats in a sweatshop, Ten and a half hours a day for two and a half dollars a week while the owners would sweat the workers by charging them for their thread. 
their needle, their chair, etc. Soon her parents came over too, adding to her misery. And at 18, she just gave in and married a man who also hated work and uh, loved books. Though this granted her US citizenship, key, um, her husband proved impotent on their wedding night. She filed for divorce, writing, if I ever love a man, I will give myself to him without being bound by the rabbi or the law, and when that love dies, I will leave without permission. So to give you a little bit of historical labor history background, between 1881 and 1905, there were 37,000 strikes in the US involving more than nine and a half million people. At least 500 of these strikes ended in bloodshed when state or federal troops were called in. The victims were hardly ever counted as they were considered foreign workers. They weren't Americans, they didn't count. And if there was one event that radicalized Emma, if we can call it that, it was the Haymarket riot in Chicago. At a peaceful demonstration for the eight-hour workday, a bomb was thrown at cops in retaliation for them shooting at strikers. The bomb killed eight cops, seven cops, sorry, and at least four civilians, but the police violence that followed killed many, many more. And though the actual culprit was never caught, the cops simply arrested eight prominent anarchists, uh, tried them for murder, and four were executed. Suffice to say, revolution was in the air. So Emma moved to New York City, to the Lower East Side, $5 and a sewing machine in her hand. On her first day, literally the first hour, she met this dude, um, <laughs> Alexander Berkman, AKA Sasha, who became her lover and then her best friend for life. Uh, she also met this guy, Johann Most, who ran a publication called Freiheit, which is a German language anarchist magazine, one of over 300 such publications being published in America at the time. And there were Yiddish ones, it was Russian, all kinds of stuff. So both uh, Sasha and Most were avid anarchists and both were pro-political assassinations, which you'll remember were kind of big at the time, right? And Most started grooming her, both sort of sexually, which is really gross, and professionally to, to make her into a proper anarchist activist. So very suddenly, Emma was off on her first lecture tour. Most had written the script for her, in German, and uh, at first she awkwardly stuck to it, but by the time she got to Cleveland, she was speaking from the heart. In a flash, I saw it. The factory, its drudgery and humiliation, the failure of my marriage, the Chicago crime. I began to speak. Words I'd never heard myself utter came pouring forth faster and faster. The audience had vanished, the hall itself had disappeared. I was conscious only of my own words, of my ecstatic song. She figured out how to relate her own experience to those of the audiences uh, and how their relatively small demands, like two hours less work per day, related to larger struggles in society, right? She, she really tried to awaken these people. She berated them for their cowardice, urged them to stand up for themselves, and her audiences loved her for it. On her return to New York City, most tried to woo her back as his protege, but she had found her calling. I flared up, declaring I would not be treated as a mere female. I blurted out that I would never again follow blindly, which is very true. 
at 21, she would help organize dances to support a cloakmaker's strike. At one dance, a young cousin of Sasha's took her aside with a grave face as if we were about to announce the death of a dear comrade. He whispered to me that it did not behoove an agitator to dance. <laughs> Certainly not with such reckless abandon, anyway. My frivolity would only hurt the cause. I grew furious. I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful ideal, for release and freedom from conventions and prejudice, should demand the denial of life and joy. I insisted that our cause could not expect me to become a nun, and that the movement should not be turned into a cloister. If it meant that, I did not want it. I wanted freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. <laughs> it's likely that this story spawned Emma's most famous and apocryphal quote, uh, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your re revolution. Uh, it was uh, very popular. For instance, this is Audre Lorde wearing a t-shirt with that lovely quote on it, uh, in a lake, or on a lake, I guess, <laughs> in Berlin, and she looks so good. Okay, so for Emma, anarchism meant opposing all forms of government. Instead, people should be free to associate in groups and have all their needs met, each according to his ability, each according to his need, as Marx would have it. Greed and envy, humanity's worst traits, would fade away, and the truly free people would co cooperate instead of being thrown into competition with each other. So she didn't see the point of elections or unions, really. Neither would overthrow capitalism, organized religion, and the state, which is really what she was after. Um, to show you a little bit about how she operated, I'll show you a clip from a film that Warren Beatty directed that's very long. It's also very good. It's 195 minutes. It's called Reds, and Maureen Stapleton plays Emma. It's just 20 seconds. It Capitalists can take this country into war anytime they Wait. damn well please. The only impact you can make is in the streets. Yes, of course, you can yes, make but, some in, but, but don't, but don't you think, Emma, that if Debs gets a lot of votes, it'll strengthen that impact? No, I don't. I think voting is the opium of the masses in this country. Every four years, you're dead in the pain. So, in 1892. The Homestead Massacre would really test Emma's convictions. Uh, Robert Barron, Andrew Carnegie, you know his last name uh, at least, had tasked his operations manager, Henry Frick, with breaking the union at his Pennsylvania steel plant. After they were all fired, workers stormed the mill, which was defended by 300 hired Pinkerton men, at least three of whom died in the resulting massacre, in which many were injured and at least seven workers were killed. Sasha decided to assassinate Frick. Uh, this is Frick. He, it's that Frick from the museum in New York. There's Vermeer. Uh, it's his house also. Um, so Emma helps plan this assassination, even trying and failing to turn tricks on 42nd Street in order to get the necessary money together. But though Sasha shoots Frick three times, uh, Frick survives, the assassination fails, resulting in a 22-year jail sentence for Sasha. Emma would only admit to her involvement years later. She'd never explicitly support political violence, but also never stopped defending anarchists accused of political violence. 
She'd say, as an anarchist, I'm opposed to violence, but if the people want to do away with assassins, they first have to do away with the conditions that produce murderers. You know. Um, and when her old mentor Most, you remember him, um, spoke out against Sasha on stage, Goldman actually rushed the stage, hitting him across the face with a whip, <laughs> then breaking the whip and throwing the pieces at him. <laughs> much later, much, much later, she would sort of apologize for this and say, when you're 23, you don't always act reasonably. Amidst one of the U.S.'s worst depressions, with 20 to 25 percent unemployed and going hungry, Emma would stand on an overturned box in the middle of New York's Union Square, speaking to about 5,000 people. Men and women, do you not realize that the state is the worst enemy you have? It's a machine that crushes you in order to sustain the ruling class, your masters. Do you not see the immense wealth within a stone's throw of here? Fifth Avenue is laid in gold, every mansion a citadel of money and power. Wake up. Become daring enough to demand your rights. Demonstrate before the palaces of the rich. Demand work. If they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take bread. It's your sacred right. This turned into a bit of a riot when the police came in and uh, the tabloids were all in a frenzy about what they called Red Emma printing her every word uh, in translation because she was still lecturing in German at this point. That would soon change. Arrested for inciting the riot, she was, this is her mugshot. Excellent mugshot. <laughs> right? That's, that's side-eye done two times. She was sent to Blackwell's Island Prison, which is now, of course, Roosevelt Island. Uh, where she started training as a nurse and improving the prison's conditions, because if you're in jail, better make the best of it. She was also tutored in English by Ed Brady, who was a newly arrived Austrian anarchist that she'd met at the salon. He had been there, like, playing around with matches, and she told him children shouldn't play with fire. He was, like, 20 years older than her. And he replied, all right, Grandma. But you should know, I'm a revolutionist. I love fire, don't you? Needless to say, they became lovers. <laughs> and uh, he introduced her to world literature. Emma reading Wilde and Whitman, uh, Ibsen and Shaw, George Sand, George Eliot, um, all while inside. Outside, the 25-year-old Emma only grew more and more infamous, the press calling her the high priestess of reds, or Five Feet of Anarchy. Uh, intrepid reporter Nellie Bly, I hope you've heard of Nellie Bly. A, a future, did, she, was an in, she got herself locked into a mental asylum to write about it. Yes. Anyway, so she called her a modern Joan of Arc, which seems more apropos. On her release, they were waiting outside, and the press asked if she was cured. I am more of an anarchist than, than ever, she said. Society lies in its last convulsions. They cannot expect theft, murder, prostitution, and oppression to be gotten rid of unless the system which breeds rottenness is gone. My motto is as ever, death to tyranny. Vive l'anarchie. The newspapers described her in obsessive detail. For instance, 
She has a shapely head, light bluish-gray eyes shielded by glasses, a small, finely chiseled nose, rather too wide at the nostrils for symmetry. <laughs> when she smiled, her lips wreathed into lines that were uglier than when her face was in repose, <laughs> making the interior of her mouth look black, or rather that dull, opaque hue characteristic of the mouths of some snakes. <laughs> yeah. Emma moved in with Ed, but he seemed surprised that she didn't want to like uh, settle down and have kids. Like, had he been to any of her lectures? <laughs> Being obliged to stay in one place for months, years, or perhaps an entire life, she wrote. Always having to spend time with the same people, drink in the same beer dens. This disconsolately bleak monotony of everyday life would fill me with terror. Ed figured she could at least continue her training at the best possible place, so off she went to Vienna to study nursing. She loved it. And not just going to see the likes of Eleonora Duse, another excellent dead lady, discussing Nietzsche with everybody, because everybody had read Nietzsche, and attending actual Freud's actual lectures. The gaiety and lightheartedness of the Viennese people, she said. I longed to throw myself into its generous arms, to sit in the cafes or in the Prata and watch the crowds. Now, um, as a dead lady devotee, and while we're on the subject of Austria, I should also note that when Empress Elizabeth, or Sisi, was assassinated by an anarchist, that part is not in the movies, is it? <laughs> she was assassinated by an, by an anarchist, like stabbed with a bayonet, it's, it's quite gruesome. Um, Emma actually denounced this attack, quite unreservedly, calling her a harmless, unhappy, and not unkind woman. Which, anyway. It's feigned praise, but it's not Kill Romy Schneider, which is like, <gasps> I wouldn't have been able to stand here. Um, inspired by Vienna's air of like questioning everything, of sexuality as a critical force, which she'd gotten sort of from Freud. I mean, she'd improved on Freud. She returned to the US even more committed and carrying plenty of contraceptives um, to distribute. Now able to support herself as a nurse and as a midwife, uh, at least to poor people, because rich people preferred men, male doctors. In 1901, President McKinley was assassinated by a man who'd been to one of her speeches. Uh, newspapers quoted him as saying, her words set me on fire. Emma was briefly arrested for complicity. Her family kicked out of their synagogue and she had to go underground, taking on the name of E.G. Smith. This is her mugshot. Emma was 32. So she's E.G. Smith. She opens a massage parlor <laughs> on Broadway. <laughs> and a few years later, she, she sort of I mean, people kept asking her this E.G. Smith character who they like, whoa, she can really give really good speeches. We should invite her. <laughs> so after a while, she was just embracing it. Uh, so she founded the Free Speech League in response to a law barring anarchists' entry into the U.S. before dropping everything, like you do, to run an avant-garde Russian political theater troupe <laughs> featuring future silent movie star Ala Nazimova, who we previously heard of on the stage when she gave the first job to Anna Mae Wong. Anyway, that's a deep cut. 
their performances helped fund the first issue of Emma's monthly magazine called Mother Earth. With a print run of about 3,000, it was dedicated to serious long reads. There were like more fun anarchist publications. This, this was not one of them. <laughs> this is serious, covering issues like birth control, education, prison reform, literature, contemporary drama, religious fundamentalism, gender, racism, all from an anarchist perspective. Run from her apartment, it would go on for 12 years, and, uh, and it would feature the likes of Margaret Sanger, famous birth control activist, uh, Voltairine de Clare, who here you see, she, she died very young, but she was a big supporter of Emma's. Uh, she also wrote about expropriation, which is a big hot topic in Berlin right now. Uh, it also, you know, Darwin, Tolstoy, Gorky, all these people. Uh, so at 10 cents an issue, Mother Earth required constant fundraising to stay afloat. So she toured lectures on just about really everything from modern European drama to homosexuality, women's independence, or my favorite, the right to be lazy. <laughs> um, she also organized annual masquerade balls, at one of which she danced something called the anarchist slide. While dressed as a nun. <laughs> it was a waltz. Um, at one lecture, Emma met the love of her life, hobo-turned-gynecologist, <laughs> Ben Reitman. <laughs> An exotic, picturesque figure with a large black cowboy hat, flowing silk tie, and huge cane, she wrote. He looked a handsome brute. His fingernails, like his hair, seemed to be on strike against soap and brush. <laughs> a strange charm seemed to emanate from them, caressing and stirring. They slept together on the first night. Their letters are absolutely red hot, the, using code words for their genitalia. One breast was Mont Blanc. <laughs> the other was uh, Mont Jura. Uh, ten years younger than her, Ben became her lover, her impresario. All her friends hated him. <laughs> For a decade, uh, they would spend at least half the year on tours, her speaking two to three hours every night, Ben hawking pamphlets and distributing contraceptives. In 1910 alone, this meant 120 lectures in 25 states, uh, 37 cities, selling 37,000 tickets to people who would otherwise have gone to like the gospel revival or the ventriloquist next door, um, introducing them to anarchism, to feminism, to all these ideas. Uh, she did not take up Oscar Hammerstein, his offer to do 20-minute speeches between clowns and acrobats <laughs> off Times Square. But she was a welcome guest also at places like the Harvard Law Students Association or all kinds of socialites salons in Manhattan. Emma always remained a bridge between militant activists and larger liberal audiences. The little reviews Margaret Anderson wrote about her, life takes on an intenser quality when she's there, something cosmic in the air, a feeling of worlds in the making. Yet Emma did not join the suffragettes' call for the right to vote or work, funnily enough. She wrote, she asked, rather, what is gained if the narrowness of the home is exchanged for the narrowness of the office or factory? As a sexual radical, Emma wanted to ban marriage. 
Conditions cannot be changed until this infernal system is abolished, she wrote. I demand the independence of woman, her right to support herself, to live for herself, to love whomever she pleases or as many as she pleases. But despite her sort of public defense of free love, it was much harder to privately reconcile herself with being in a relationship with a man who was literally scouring her audiences while she was lecturing for groupies to sleep with. Um, she wrote to Ben, the woman you have awakened into frantic, savage, hungry life recoils from you, feels outraged because you have thrust her aside for a moment's fancy because you've outraged her sacred shrine, that tent, oh God, where passion held its glorious, maddening feast. The agony that our love has not saved us from the same course of vulgar scenes of the ordinary has completely paralyzed me. She was devastated. However, uh, certainly in later years, she would have passionate love affairs with men that were much younger, much hotter also. <laughs> than Ben until she was deep in her 60s. After the Russian Revolution and when the US joined World War I, speaking out against the draft or even government policy became very dangerous. So four to 10,000 people were arrested on brutal new sedition and espionage laws, the Patriot Acts of the day, basically. With strikes and protests sweeping the country, Emma became a linchpin of free speech cases across the US, arrested and jailed time and again. Undaunted, Emma helped found the No Conscription League, speaking to thousands and thousands of people. On arrival in San Francisco, just to give you one little scene from this uh, time of her life, the police chief demanded to know if she was planning to blow up the American fleet, which was just then in the San Francisco Harbor, to which she answered, why waste a bomb? <laughs> um, soon, she'd be arrested. Emma grabbing her toiletries and a copy of Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. <laughs> Having reading material in jail was essential, she thought. She always had a book at the ready just in case she had to go to jail. Tried for sedition, Emma and Sasha defended themselves in court, of course. It must be decided sooner or later whether we are justified in telling people that we will give them democracy in Europe when we have no democracy here. Emma said, arguing that they defied the law in order to declare it unjust, not unlike Jesus or the founding fathers, she argued. The jury found them guilty, uh, which left Emma sewing 36 jackets a day from a Missouri cell that she had decorated with crepe paper. On her release, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI and of being secretly gay, um, <laughs> who believed Emma to be the most dangerous woman in America, uh, had her and Sasha deported to Soviet Russia. In order to be able to do this, government agents had spent the previous 11 years trying to kick her out, eventually actually denaturalizing Emma's original husband, remember? Way back in Rochester, in order to be able to take her citizenship away, right? Because if, if he didn't have any, hers would be invalid. Poor, poor United States government, she wrote. True, you have Emma Goldman's citizenship but she has the world, and her heritage is the kinship of brave spirits. Not a bad bargain. Plus Russia, right? Very exciting at the time. 
Sacred ground, magic people, destined to redeem mankind. I have come to serve you, Matushka. Take me to your bosom. Let me pour myself into you. Mingle my blood with yours. Find my place in your heroic struggle and give to the uttermost to your needs. So despite knowing the very complicated position that anarchists had in Russia at the time, the reality Emma faced when she actually got there proved like the rudest of possible awakenings. There was hardly any food or fuel, no freedom of expression, state surveillance was everywhere. When Emma wrangled a meeting with Lenin, because she did have that kind of pull, he snapped back that freedom was a bourgeois luxury. Severely disillusioned, she wrote, Soviet Russia had become the modern socialist Lourdes, to which the blind and the lame, the deaf and the dumb were flocking for miraculous cures. Before the great purge began in earnest, they escaped, Sasha and Emma. J. Edgar Hoover, however, had alerted all of Europe's intelligence services. This was pre-computer, so they, it was like very shambolic, but everybody was on the alert. And the two were forced to roam. They, remember, they were stateless. Uh, Riga, Stockholm, Berlin. In Berlin, she was assaulted on the U-Bahn by anti-Semites who said, wait till things change, then we'll fix the likes of you like we did Rosa Luxemburg. So off she went to London, where she was uh, constantly freezing, uh, but, <laughs> I mean fact, but warmly received by the likes of H.G. Wells and Bertrand Russell, at least until she started explaining how the horrific Soviet dictatorship had been the direct result of the revolution. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear hopeful stories about Russia. Not Rebecca West. Rebecca West stayed at her side and called her one of the best cooks in the world. Her and Willa Cather. This is like a dead lady plethora that I'm giving you here. So in order to be able to stay anywhere, she'd need a passport. So she married a willing Welsh coal miner uh, slash anarchist. And Emma, age 65, became a Brit. Another unlikely savior stepped in, and Peggy Guggenheim bought her a little cottage in the then very sleepy town of Saint-Tropez. <laughs> it was called Bon Esprit, <laughs> but Emma would never live up to its spirit. Exile really pained her, but here she wrote her thousand-page memoir. It would be very well received, though her candor proved controversial when she discussed very openly all her love affairs. She left out the one with Almeida Sperry, um, the bisexual Almeida Sperry. Uh, there were limits to what her readers would have been able to accept, she felt, maybe. In a letter to uh, the great Berlin sexologist, Magnus Hirschfeld, she proved years ahead of her time, however, writing, it's a tragedy, I feel, that people of a different sexual type are caught in a world which shows so little understanding for homosexuals, and it is so crassly indifferent to the various gradations and variations of gender and their great significance in life. In the early 1930s, uh, she starts lecturing all over Europe about the dangers of fascism, and when FDR becomes president and the likes of uh, Josephine Baker start lobbying for her case, She's even allowed to return to the US for 90 days, now considered a harmless old lady. Uh, I'll show you a clip from her press conference. Here she is. What do you think about Russia, Miss Goldman? I consider Russia and America the most interesting countries in the world today. How about Hitler? I don't know him and don't want to. What is your opinion of Italy? Beautiful country, minus Mussolini. 
Ms. Goldman, should the government here object to your speeches of anarchism, would you change them or leave the country? I will leave the country rather than deny my ideas. I prefer to stick to my gun. She's amazing. Uh, it, it's funny how in, in real life she was so witty and sharp and in prose she's like purple as hell. But both are wonderful versions of Emma. Um, when they called her a martyr, however, the press, uh, she disagreed, saying, please don't feel that I have made sacrifices. I've followed my bent, lived my life as I chose, and no one owes me anything. I am no more respectable than I ever was. It's you who've become a little more liberal, and it's never too late to progress. You're progressing. Only liberty is worth fighting for. This is the job I'll keep at until I'm either hanged or fall asleep in some other way. And she would. Uh, going to Barcelona during the Spanish Civil War, getting a glimpse of what an actual anarchist society of almost 10 million people that, that worked, what that looked like. She was completely inspired and, and then devastated, of course, when the bombings and the sort of foreign-influenced infighting between communists and, and anarchists uh, killed that dream. Emma settled into her final exile in Toronto. This is from a... <laughs> Toronto newspaper, <laughs> which very humbly admits that she called it deadly dull. And she's just across the lake from her sort of beloved America. Um, she's 70 years old, not allowed to talk about Canadian politics or about the impending war, what would become World War II. A stroke she suffered during a card game silenced her forever, and she died a few months later on May 14th, 1940. She was buried in Chicago, right by the Haymarket Martyrs. They led her back in the country when she was dead. All her life, she stood up to bullies, to the patriarchy, to capitalism and repressive states, always speaking truth to power. And though she may not have fully converted many of her thousands upon thousands of readers and listeners to the anarchist cause, her arguments, her wit, her empathy did make them question their own assumptions, their own lives. And uh, if you want to know more about Emma, uh, you can read her autobiography. The whole thing is free online, anarchism. Uh, and this abridged version from Penguin is not a thousand pages long, which is nice. Uh, is also great. Both versions sort of gloss over some key points, so you also might want to read one of the many biographies, these are the ones that I like the best, uh, Vivian Gornick is very short and it goes deep on the, the politics. Candace Falks called Love, Anarchy, and Emma Goldman goes deep into those love letters. Depending on your interest, you can choose either. Uh, and there's also even, as you saw, a graphic novel by Sharon Rudall uh, that I also recommend that uh, uses a lot of actual quotes from her. And uh, that's my talk. Thank you for coming. Lorian Dowsons on Emma Goldman recorded earlier this week in Berlin's Akud. And thanks to our very helpful friends there, including Huey Inez Remy on sound and Andros at the bar and beyond. Now, Katie Florian also presented this talk a second time this week at a special event. Uh, let's say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so he was at the inaugural Emma Goldman Awards ceremony. So cool. Yeah. And, and these are a series of, of um, awards given to academics who are working on feminist and equality issues in Europe. They don't have to be European, they just have to be working here in Europe. 
So the exciting and fun part, I think, is the main winners get 50,000 euros each to support their work. And but there's also this very cute snowball um, award where those main winners, they get 10,000 euros to pass on to like a more junior uh, member of their team or a scholar whose work they admire, which is just gorgeous. It's really, it's really good, and I love the name too, Snowball, the Snowball yeah. Effect. Yeah. It's really cheering yeah. um, to have something like that going on right yeah. now and to be encouraging not just people who are doing the work now, but who people who are going to be doing the work in the future. Absolutely, yeah. That's in, in Vienna, and the ceremony was at the Institute for Human Sciences, and the award comes from the Flax Foundation. And uh, we will put a link to that uh, on our website if you want to go learn more about that and find out who won these awards. Yeah, Snowball I'm, and otherwise. I'm kind of intrigued, yeah. <laughs> so one last Emma note. Katie, you tweeted a rather entertaining song after the live show. Um, yeah, share it. Ah, so this is, because of course, as Florian pointed out, we all know that quote, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. And it's a really thumping dance track by uh, British musician Sophie Ellis-Bexter, which I actually discovered on the soundtrack of the St. Trinian's movie. Niche. Slightly niche. Anyway, it's called If I Can't Dance and uh, uh, Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Possibly, although I'm, I don't think Emma Goldman, I don't know if she has a grave, but I can't quite decide if she'd be turning in it or not turning in it, or dancing in it. Anyway, have a, 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 a listen out for that, yeah. Yes, should we dance on her grave or not? <laughs> <laughs> I think we can, yeah, anyway. We'll just dance in her honor instead. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll also have a link to that song, as well as some great photos of Emma Goldman at our website, deadladyshow.com slash podcast, where there's also a link for our sprightly theme music, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Uh, and you can follow us on social media at Dead Lady Show. And please do share, rate and review the show because it really helps other people to find our podcast. We now have transcripts of some of our shows. Thanks to help from our very kind Patreon supporters. You can become one over at patreon.com slash Podcast. And we'd like to say thank you and welcome to our newest supporter, Olivia Mickle of the very fine women's history podcast. What's her name? The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to Florian and to Katie and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Go dance. <laughs> Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Zenat. <laughs>